Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So the, the talk that you're going to get from me today, the brief talk, hopefully we can get to the conversation because I think that's going to be the, that's going to be more fun. Um, this is based on my work in D.C. in policy work. So when I finished my Ph.D. in moral theology, <clears throat> I began to understand why Aristotle in the ethics says that the young man or young person shouldn't study ethics. And um, I, I realized that I needed a little more practical experience before going into the classroom to teach moral theology of all things. And part of it was I would read... You know, moral theology is just about the things that you kind of have to really get your hands into, and it's messy. And so many of the textbooks that I'd read, um, it, it was just moral theology is way up here in the clouds rather than dealing with the messy concrete. So um, I had a, a good stint in D.C. Um, almost, wow, almost seven years, and it, it just fed into a very natural political part of myself. And so I'm going to share with you kind of some of my perspectives on women in political, um, in, in political life. And then I want to definitely open it up to question and, and answer conversation input, uh, because I think that there's still a lot to be done in this realm. So the first place that I want to turn to is the, if I, there we go, no, maybe not. Okay, then we'll do it this way. I just use, yeah, okay. So the Catechism um, of the Catholic Church, and another background part, I've done a lot of faithful citizenship talks in parishes, done a lot of efforts to get people, particularly in the secular, very, very secular Pacific Northwest when I was living in Seattle, Catholics get out and be active in the public life. So... The, the catechism says, as far as possible, citizens should take an active part in public life. And that's both men and women. Secondly, submission to authority and co-responsibility for the common good make it morally ob obligatory to pay taxes, to exercise the right to vote, and to defend one's country. And this exercise the right to vote is really important. And a lot of more conservative Christian communities, including conservative Catholic communities, people kind of start to say, you know what, the world's too messy, politics are too messy, I'm going to sit this one out. There isn't a candidate that, you know, that, that, that I can really resonate with, I'm going to sit this one out. And one of the biggest, you know, there's all sorts of post-mortem analysis after presidential campaigns, and one of the things that is not talked about yet, I think the, the I think the documentation is there for it, if we were to look for it, is that um, Christians are a significant voting bloc. And when we sit out an election because we don't want to get our hands dirty, there is an impact. And so, anyway, just, uh, let me move on. And political activity also is a type of charity. And I love this quote from, Saint, from Pope Francis. He says, none of us could say that I have nothing to do with this. They govern. No, no, I am responsible for their governance, and I have to do the best so that they can govern well, and I have to do the best by participating in politics according to my ability. Politics, according to the social doctrine, is one of the highest forms of charity because it serves the common good. I cannot wash my hands, hey? We all have to give something. This is from September of 2013. 
So this is, brings me to my main theme, and you're going to hear this three times today. If you don't speak, you allow others to be your voice, even when you disagree with what they say. And that's been a huge problem, particularly on the life issue for so long. The dominant voice, particularly the dominant women's voice, has been one that is contrary to life. Um, it is the voice of death. And we frequently sit out because we say, I, I'm just not interested, or this is too tough. I'm not articulate enough. I don't know what to say. Well, politics are everywhere, and you need to voice your opinion. Politics are in the grocery store. They're with your friends, your colleagues, even your family. <laughs> Although there, there can be prudential arguments about going into politics with your family. So the role of women. I want to go to the collaboration of men and women. This is a document that Dr. Newton just cited in his talk. This is a document that came out in 2004 and put out by the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith. It was for then Cardinal Ratzinger's signature. And when it came out, it was the end of July, beginning of August. And remember, I had lived in Rome for six years. I worked in and near the Vatican. And so when I read the headlines, the headlines are basically, you know, Vatican wants women barefoot and pregnant. And that also said, cited un, unnamed sources in the Vatican. Well, if you have spent any time in Rome in the summer, you know that there are no experts in Rome, in the Vatican, at the end of July, beginning of August. The only people there are the people that run the, you know, the, the guards inside St. Peter's and the ladies that run the toilets. So it was ironic because I'm reading unnamed, unnamed sources. I'm thinking, who could that be? Because nobody's there. And there was a lot to this document. Um, and, and what was funny or ironic was that actually some conservatives were very upset with it. And it was because of this, this section. I'm not going to read you. Well, I guess I will read it. Okay, so in this perspective, one understands the irreplaceable role of women in all aspects of family and social life involving human relationships and caring for others. Here, what John Paul II has termed the genius of women becomes very clear. It implies, first of all, that women be significantly and actively present in the family, the primordial and, in a certain sense, sovereign society, since it is here, above all, that the features of a people take shape. It is here that its members acquire a basic teaching. They learn to love in as much as they are loved. They learn respect for others in as much as they are respected. They learn to know the face of God in as much as they receive a first revelation of it from a father and mother full of attention in their regard. Does this sound familiar to what we just heard? <laughs> Good recap. Whenever these fundamental experiences are lacking, society as a whole suffers violence and becomes, in turn, the progenitor of more violence. And of course, the, again, this is backed up with a whole host of sociological data, which I didn't bring in. It's easily accessible. Um, I mean, I, just because of the time limit constraints. Okay, wait, no. Okay. They learn to love in as much as they are unconditionally loved. They learn respect for, uh, for others in as much as they are respected. They learn to know the face of God. Oh, we just, I'm sorry, I just read this. Okay. So this is the last paragraph of that section. It also means that women should be present in the world of work and the organization of society, and that women should have access to positions of responsibility which allow them to promote innovative solutions to economic and social problems. This is not a new, new 
concept. Although, again, conserv some conservative Catholics responded to it as if it were, were new and if it were as if it were problematic. Um, this has been seen throughout the history of the church, uh, and it had been enunciated several times in the pontificate of John Paul II, uh, letter to women, Valeria Signitatum, etc. So again, it, women, this document and others clearly put women in the center of society, being able to be in the world of work and in the organization of society. This is very, very important for many reasons, such as um, Professor Newton just gave. But I'm going to bring you back to this point, and that if you don't speak, you allow others to be your voice. And again, the, world, the work of the home is the most important work. But what I really encourage women is not to underestimate themselves because they're doing the work of the home doesn't mean that they don't have a voice in society. In fact, I think sometimes their voice is even more important. Politics are everywhere. We have been, I'm, this is my thesis, I, that we've been hijacked by pelvic politics. So when it comes to women's issues, what we're talking about is you know things that happen in one area of the body. Um, and yet women's issues are really, um, it's, it's women's health, all of it. And um, it also involves things uh, under the, con the umbrella of freedom of conscience, definitely marriage and family, definite economic. We have tons of data that shows that as soon as women marry and start having children, their economic perspectives change drastically. Why? Because they have a different vision. It, it, makes, it makes perfect sense. You're, you're seeing the world differently when you have others to care for. Um, another area in which the economic plays forth is this. I heard Muhammad Yunus speak a few years ago, and he's kind of the grandfather of microloans. And what they found in the microloan system, so these are loans that are given to people in the developing world, usually in range of like $50 to $200. And this is to help the individual start some sort of a small business for, the, so for their families, basically, and so that they can become, have some way to support themselves and to support their families. Interestingly, um, the data has repeatedly shown that women make the best borrowers. And the speculation on that is that men are not as tied, however well-intentioned, they are not as tied to that immediate, those immediate needs of their family. So if a man is given this microloan, again, $50, $200, small loan, there's a much higher statistical rate that he will squander it and it won't be used. The woman is more tied to the needs of her family, whether it's her immediate family, extended family. And so these loan programs are being shaped now to women because women are, they're doing wonderfully and, and they're starting successful businesses, which creates stability, not only provide for their family, but that helps to create social stability. Also, women obviously have interest in national security. And again, um, statistically, these, these perspectives on national security tend to change once a woman starts to have children. And, and she becomes, again, much more interested. And there are many other issues, which I'm, I'm sure you'll bring up. There are also international issues, <clears throat> women's health. When I was in DC, we were working on the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So that was a $15 billion package of aid that was destined for the developing countries to uh, protect against HIV AIDS. And at first, it was aligned with a UN um, document from the General Assembly which was promoting condoms, and um, if you read it carefully, uh, abortion as a way to control the spread of HIV AIDS infection. And so uh, a lot of groups banded together to address this. One of the things that appalled me was that the conversation on condoms 
completely took out of the equation women's health. And so there was a roundtable study that was done. It was um, commissioned by the Clinton administration, and it was published under the Bush administration. And so you can't consider it a you know some type of conservative whatever. Uh, it, I think it was fairly balanced. And at the time, they went through all the literature that was available against the protection of STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. And what they found was that um, condoms were offered protection in about three diseases, major diseases out of 20-some. I can't remember if the number is 24 or 26. And of course, women were, were even less protected than men were. And upwards of 90% of all cases of HPV, of HPV I mean, excuse me, upwards of 90% of all cases of cervical cancer are caused by HPV, which are not protected. You know, do, women are not protected from HPV with condoms, right? Not at all. So here we were looking at this huge, you know, $15 million aid package that was focused on um, a, a huge component of it was condoms. And that was going to do nothing to protect women against HPV and cervical cancer, and relatively, the, the relative protection to against HIV/AIDS was very limited. So my question was: Are we looking for another, a second health epidemic uh, in the developing world? And I remember getting into uh, my boss. She was on a conversation with somebody from the White House. They were very upset because we weren't supporting this yet, right? And we were, of course, pushing for an abstinence, um, an ABC abstinence, be faithful within abstinence before marriage, be faithful within marriage. C, kind of the little C. And so this White House person kept pushing on me. You know, I, I don't understand what the problem is. But actually, he was pushing on my boss. And so I looked at her and I said, and I kind of, you know, motioned to her. I said, can I get on? Because it was speaker. I said, can I speak? She said, yeah. I said, all right. I said, I want you to go through the document and do a word search for condom. So he did. And of course, it was in there, I don't know, 180 times, whatever, something like that. And I said, now, I want you to go through there and do a word search for abstinence. It was two words, two times, right? Anyway, the, the, this is just one example. Um, the, I, I spoke a little bit to economics, again, for the sake of time, because I want to make sure we have time for conversation. I do want to talk about education. Um, some interesting things have happened in Kerala. I remember a priest friend of mine telling me about a businessman, who, a private businessman, who wanted to help girls stay in school. Right? And he figured out that the reason that these girls were leaving school was because their families were so poor that they couldn't provide for food for them. Right? So he went to their families and he said, will you promise to keep your girls in school if I promise to provide one square meal a day for them, lunch? I will, it's, it's a free lunch program. All right? He came up with a free lunch program. So these girl, the parents agreed. So the girls stayed in school. They completed their education. It meant no early, um, early marriages or young child marriages, uh, it meant that they were able to go out and work, and it was an automatic stab population stabilizer. And in other parts of the world where it, it is very, education is difficult to attain and, and food is a major crisis for people, something like programs like this could do a lot to keep women in school. And again, looking at, um, I'm, I'm throwing a lot at you, but that's just the way my mind works, so I apologize. And Looking at the, one of the interesting things is that when you look at immigration statistics, immigration populations that assimilate the best are the ones with the highest percentage of women. So population groups that come into a country and have more women, they assimilate much better. 
population groups that come into a country with fewer women do not assimilate. So in Italy, when I was living there, the, um, the, popu the immigrant population that had the most were the Filipino communities. And they came in with, fifth, I don't know, 53 or 57% women, right? The populations that had the least were the Muslim communities. And they were coming in with 12%, 27% women, right? So, in, and it completely throws off the stability. And, and you begin to see, I mean, uh, again, the education component is, is critical because if you educate the women, they, they, it, there's a population stabilizer, not just in terms of the age that the woman goes on to marry, but in her own formation and her ability to participate in society. In Africa, there have been some great programs started um, to because they realized that a lot of young girls couldn't continue high school because they didn't have sanitary products, right? We take that very much for granted in the developed world. Um, in the developing world, if a family has to make the choice between a girl getting having sanitary products or food for the family, well, what are they going to do? They're going to choose food for their family, right? So this has been a very constructive way to get girls access to education. Um, in the, at the UN, I'm going to tie together the UN and the Beijing Women's Conference. So the Beijing Women's Conference was 1995, and ostensibly it was about women in leadership. And yet the whole agenda going into it was we're going to get reproductive health to mean abortion at the United Nations. And the, the Holy See, the church, has done a fabulous job of keeping that from happening. And John Paul II was brilliant. He sent in a delegation that was led by a woman, Professor Marianne Glendon. I'm going to just share one anecdote with you. When he received a draft of one of the documents, he said that it, um, he said I, he wished that a document that spent so much time talking about women's fertility in the reproductive health area spent as much time talking about women's literacy. And I, I just found that very profound. But it, to me, it points to the fact that we need to have women involved. We need to be looking at these things from a, from a, a woman's perspective. Um, there's just, and, and we need both men and women. So let me fast forward, sort of. I mean, let me jump to another point. Uh, this was 2003, and this was when President Bush signed the ban on partial birth abortion, right? And it was a lot of us were horrified because that's just... That's not a great picture for the pro-life side. Uh, there were zero women in it, obviously. What you needed was one or two pregnant women as well, and young women. That's the picture you wanted. So of course, here's one, an example <clears throat> of how this was taken. We white males need to stick together so we can impose our moral values on women and their doctors, right? So what if a few women die during childbirth now? At least the fundamentalists will vote for us. That's how that was spun. But it was wide open. I mean, it was just rife. It, it was rife. Um, we didn't learn our lesson. A few years later, starting with the HHS contraceptive mandate, this is February 16, 2012, uh, on behalf of the church, we had a bunch of men go up to speak about contraception. And I love our church. I love our church leadership. What I don't understand is why there weren't a team of women sitting there, um, because we have them. And this is what Planned Parenthood did with the picture. And they, uh, they took a, a small detail of the picture. They sent this out. I got the email. What's wrong with this picture? Tell Congress, stop trying to block women's access to birth control. And then we had the young woman from Georgetown University, Sandra Fluke. Actually, her name is not pronounced that way. But I was on a, I was on a radio show, and the producer told me, he said, her, her name's not pronounced that, pronounced that way. I said, I know. 
but if I pronounce it the way it's supposed to be pronounced, every elderly person is going to be calling you saying that you're having, you have obscenities on your show. And so, anyway, this became hijacked. I mean, suddenly this woman can't afford, she claims that, she's telling us that she can't afford the $9 a month for her birth control pills for her really busy sex life, even though she's going to be an attorney and has an incredible earning potential. We're going to set aside the morality. We're just looking at the economics. So I want to back up a little bit, um, and, and just to show you that this has been in the, the foundational vision of the United States, and that's... Um, Abigail Adams, I don't know how much you've read about her, but she was the wife of John Adams. And I'm going to share a few with you a few pieces, a, a few sections from a letter that she wrote to her husband. And she said, I long to hear that you've declared an independency. And by the way, in the new, so this is all, we're waiting for the birth of the, of the United States. And she says, and by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. I can go off on that later if you want. Um, do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. She continues, if particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. She says that your sex are so naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. I love this. This is 300 years ago, written to the found, one of the founding fathers. But such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend. And she and her husband have, a, you can read their correspondence, and it's truly, a, one of the books is titled Something Friend, but it's beautiful. She says, why not then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity and impunity? Men of sense in all ages abhor those customs which teach us only as the vassals of your sex. Regard us then as beings placed by providence under your protection and in imitation of the supreme being. Make use of that power only for our happiness. His, his response, <laughs> your letter was the first intimation that another tribe more powerful, more numerous and powerful than all the rest, were grown discontent. And um, over 100 years later, we, we witnessed the suffragette movement, which again was a response to women. By and large, if you study the history of the suffragettes, it was, a history, it was women who wanted to have a say precisely because they were concerned about the issues of the family, and in many cases, abortion, and they felt that their voices were not adequately represented by men when they were voting. So we, I, I showed you kind of some of the photo faux pas that I think didn't work. And I, and I mean, politics is obviously more than photos. But in this day and age, I mean, photos are important. And more and more people aren't texting or messaging. They're using Instagram and its photos. I mean, it, that is the language. So this, is, this photo is from April 1st, 2013 um, in Seattle, we had, we were facing an abortion mandate. I don't know. This is probably, this might have been for the second or third time at this point. And so the mandate was that um, every health insurance provider would be required to cover abortion under maternity. Now, in the state of Washington, which was one of the first states to legalize abortion, every health care provider, or excuse me, every health insurance policy already did. But to mandate it, right, 
would have been to make it an essential benefit of health care, thereby challenging the executive order on the Affordable Health Care Act, or Obamacare, which said that abortion could not be defined as an essential benefit of health care, right? So if it were mandated, and again, there was no need in Washington state, you can get abortion wherever you want, and it's paid for. So the first time that I testified, it was myself and two or three gray-haired men. And so by the second or third year, I'm trying, I don't remember which this was, things had moved along. We'd progressed. So you see the Archbishop, Archbishop Sarton, we had um, a woman attorney and myself, and it just spoke volumes. But what spoke even more was, this was, and I'm sorry, the picture doesn't show up as well here as it does on my computer. These were the women that were attending. And um, this was the Washington Women's Network, which was started. I was on their board for a short while. I can't take credit for all that work. They actually stole Planned Parenthood's color, the, that magenta hot pink. So Planned Parenthood had to change the colors of their t-shirts and everything. And we had more women, and then we had more women at these hearings than Planned Parenthood did. Not only that, when it came time for citizen testimony, that is anybody that wants to get up and speak. We had more people than Planned Parenthood did, including young girls. So it was fantastic. I mean, it, it was just wonderful. Another example, and, and you know, admittedly, I'm staying in the realm of the pro-life movement because the, uh, the, I don't have that much time. So, is babies go to Congress, and this has been um, an initiative of Heartbeat International. It's a global network of pregnancy centers. I'm on their board. What they do once or twice a year, they take uh, women who have been helped by the pregnancy help centers with their children of different age, ages to Congress and they meet with any member of Congress that they can. And let me tell you, there is nothing that even the most pro-abortion member of Congress can say when there's a woman standing there saying how happy she is that there was this nonprofit pregnancy center, staffed mostly by volunteers, that helped her to make this choice, that made her feel as if she had a choice. And so these are uh, pictures that I put up. Um, this is a mother and her son meeting with uh, Congressman Keith Ellison, who's a Democrat from Minnesota. Also, oops, uh, other, we had other, another mom and her daughter meeting with Representative Giffords, Democrat from Arizona. Uh, this is meeting with Mike Turner, a Republican from Ohio, and then with William Lacey Clay, also a Democrat from Missouri. All right, and the impact is, is phenomenal. And they cannot say no to the story and to this woman standing in front of them with her story. So um, what's so special about women? Well, again, here you're going to hear an echo of Dr. Newton's talk. In his letter to women, John Paul II says, perhaps more than men, women acknowledge the person because they see persons with their hearts. And I want, you to, I want to challenge you, I'll get into this in my talk tomorrow, but I want to challenge you that this, this is not a hallmark, warm, fuzzy sense, that the sense of heart here is far deeper. And even, even in scripture, when um, we read that Mary kept these things in her heart, right, the word there in Hebrew is lev, and that word is the same for mind. So it is a knowing, there's an understanding there, there's an intellectual act, it's very, very profound. And um, I think we need to really, really go deeper into the sense of how is it that women, you know, really are women able to see people with their heart? And if that is the, if that is the case, to me it seems to make the case 
or all the more so that we need to be involved in the political realm however we can. And obviously there's going to be different stages in our lives. I mean, sometimes you're studying and you've got a thesis due and your responsibility is your education and, you know, politics is, it's just not the time for politics in your life, you know. Other times maybe you're, you're, you're doing some type of an internship and again, that's not the time. Or you've got, you know, four little ones and <laughs> it's not the time. But there can be opportunities in there. And so that's where I just suggest that you be creative as women can be. And again, I, I, I'm getting back to my last, my, that, report, that point again. If you don't speak, you allow others to be your voice, all right? Even if you disagree with what they say. And that's what's happened is that we've allowed the whole women's discourse has been dominated by this other narrative. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.